Please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Excited to preach this morning because uh, I got something new to uh, to try out. Um, I can never see the clock in the back, so I got a I got my own clock up here that uh, it's exciting to see. And now I'm yeah it's synchronized. I think well, unless someone changed it to like five minutes fast or something like that, I don't or ten minutes fast. I'm not sure. So um, now now I'll at least know when my sermons are long uh, because I'll have the the clock there to to see. Let's pray, and um, we'll begin our, our study this morning. Lord, we're grateful uh, for the chance to be gathered in a, in a warm building with uh, uh, comfort and uh, the freedom from persecution, at least at this time, and uh, the freedom to worship you uh, without restriction, uh, something that we uh, certainly take for granted that has not been the pattern of the church throughout uh, the, the centuries. And so, uh, Lord, we, we're a blessed people. Uh, at times, though, the comforts probably uh, cause us to be complacent and um, long for the comforts and even idolize the comforts. But, uh, but, Lord, we're thankful for the things you've given us and the chance we have to come and study the Word this morning. Our desire is that our eyes would be open to the truth, that our hearts would be transformed uh, by the work of the Spirit, and that we would walk from this place with a greater love for you and a desire to more faithfully walk in obedience to you. Lord, let us not just come here this morning and, and hear words and, and be unimpacted, but Lord, let our, let our lives be changed from our study of the truth. That's our prayer. We need the work of the Spirit uh, to, to help, and so we ask and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are now uh, arriving at the very familiar portion of the book of Matthew known as the Sermon on the Mount, and it occupies all of chapter 5, 6, and 7. And as you probably well know, covers a, a wide range of, of topics. And this is the first of five discourses or teaching units of Jesus. And, and Matthew seems to structure his book around these, these five teaching units. You'll remember from our introduction a few months ago that Matthew spends more time focusing on the, the teachings of Jesus than any of the other Gospels do. And so they play a prominent role, and this is the first and the most popular and most familiar uh, record of the teachings of Jesus. Now, we have just been told in chapter 4, verse 23, that Jesus went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And then immediately after that, now we have a record 
of one such sermon that Jesus preached, chapters 5 to 7. And then following that, we're going to have a lengthy list of examples of the kinds of healings that Jesus did in chapters 8 and 9. So if you can think about chapter 4, verse 23, as something of an introduction to what will be considered in the next five chapters as we look at the teachings and the healings of Jesus that, that really serve to uh, confirm he is the king. Now, because of the importance of this section of Scripture, and because it is a, a sermon of Jesus that was preached in a single, in a single unit, I want to do something unique this morning. All right. I want to read the entire Sermon on the Mount, verses or chapters 5, 6, and 7. It will take about 12 to 15 minutes, but I want you to sort of put yourself in that setting and imagine yourself listening to Jesus on this plateau on a mountain uh, and listening to the things that, uh, that he, he is his teaching. And I promise that if like, this doesn't go well and it's, like, it's a little bit too long, I won't do this again, at least from the book of Matthew. All right, so um, it'll be our, our last time doing that. And honestly, Luke's account is, uh, is much shorter. Now, as we read this sermon together, I want you to look for a few things. The first one is just kind of a fun exercise, all right? I want you to see if you can find the, the popular expressions or, or, or statements that are popular not only among believers, but outside the church as well. I think you'll notice that, that, that we, we tend to use in our culture expressions from the Sermon on the Mount without even realizing they come from the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to see if you can find some of those. I also want you to see how many times the kingdom is mentioned in these passages, and we're going to see why that's significant. I also would like you to look for elements in the sermon which would have been directly applicable to Jews living in this day that would not be directly applicable to we as believers living in the, the New Testament church age. As well, see if you can determine who the audience is of this sermon. Is Jesus preaching to believers? Is he preaching to professing believers who aren't genuine believers? Or is he preaching to unbelievers? And see what sections maybe indicate uh, that particular, uh, that answer that particular question. And then uh, look for passages that seem, at least on a surface level, to teach some sort of works-based salvation. Okay, so if you can look for those things as we, as we read the Sermon on the Mount, I think we'll be able to unpack some of those ideas as we, as we look together at this sermon. So let's read uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7 together. Again, as Jesus is, is teaching the, the crowds and focusing in on his disciples here, this is what we find the words of our Lord. Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these of the least of commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift. There before the altar and go, for, for be reconcil- first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, make her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said that by those, to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. 
And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For me, he makes his sun rise and the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for they will have no reward from your Father who is, for you will then have, for you then will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners, and they may be, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth 
nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in if then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, but yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will, not, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you see, or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them under feet and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, you will give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but are inwardly ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. 
Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then, I will, de- then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who has built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. Now you're probably thinking, well, Jesus only preached for 15 minutes. You preached for a lot longer than than Jesus. Well, these are obviously not the entirety of his sermon, but Matthew condenses it for us. And uh, so I thought it would be helpful to, to read through that sermon. There's a lot of wisdom Uh, in that section of Scripture, is there not? All right, so as we've already mentioned, this is a popular portion of Scripture, even to the unbelieving world. So how many phrases did you notice that are popular both, not among church people, but also among among the world at large? Somebody want to shout one out? Judge not is uh, probably one of the most common ones. Okay, somebody else? Okay, the meek shall inherit the earth, all right? I was struck by a number of familiar ones, so I think people are familiar with the Lord's Prayer. Uh, when I was a boy, I watched the movie Cool Runnings. Uh, the night before they had the big race, John Candy gathered the bobsled team and prayed his own version of the Lord's Prayer, which I'm not going to repeat in, uh, in, this, in, in, in this setting. Uh, maybe the left hand uh, not knowing what the right hand is doing. Uh, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. How about an eye for an eye? Uh, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. All of these are common expressions that we use that come from the, the Sermon on the Mount. And I think it's surprising just how popular the Sermon on the Mount is. Now, we are going to spend the next few months in the Sermon on the Mount. And so I want to begin this morning with five introductory thoughts about the Sermon on the Mount that help us understand it better and sort of give us clear direction in working toward toward a, a, a study of the Sermon on the Mount. So number one, notice that Matthew's Sermon on the Mount 
is likely the same sermon as Luke's Sermon on the Plain. Not the airplane, but the, the, the plane plane, okay? All right? So it's, it's, it's likely the same sermon. So if you go, you don't have to turn there, but if you were to go to Luke chapter 6 and verse 17, you would see that Jesus records this sermon on what's in our ESV called a level place. But then the content that follows this sermon on the level place It starts in the same way as the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. It finishes in the same way as the Sermon on the Mount with um, build your house upon the rock and not the sand. And then much of the content in between is is almost identical to the Sermon on the Mount that that Matthew records. So it's it's preached. uh, uh, So the question is, is it preached on the the Sermon on the Plain or Sermon on the Mount? Is it the the same sermon? I, I don't think it's hard to imagine that Jesus can be preaching in the mountains or the hills in, in this case, and he's standing or sitting at a, at a level spot in the mountains teaching this. I think it's the same sermon that we read both in Matthew and in Luke. Now, if you read through Luke, you'll notice that he records portions of the Sermon on the Mount in other sections of his gospel. And I don't think it's unreasonable to expect that Jesus, as an itinerant speaker, would have shared the same messages or thoughts in different locations as he moved from place to place. And so that explains why Luke records, and sometimes even records twice, some of the same content that Jesus, that Jesus preaches. Okay? So the first thing we need to notice about the sermon is that it's the, it's, it's the same sermon that Luke is preaching in, in Luke chapter 6. I'm sorry, that Luke records in Luke chapter 6. Secondly, I want you to notice that The Sermon on the Mount is a significant portion of Jesus' teaching that is to be passed on to all of his followers. Okay, so so think about this with me. When you get to the end of the book of Matthew, we come to what is known as the Great Commission. It's a call to make disciples of, of all the nations. But notice specifically the words of the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. He says, Go therefore... Jesus says to his followers, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then he says this, Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Now, if we were to ask the question, well, what is the, the, the content that is to be passed on to disciples of, of all that Jesus uh, instructed his disciples? I think the answer to that would be the Sermon on the Mount, or at least in large part, it would be the Sermon on the Mount. So what's to be passed on to the next generation is these recordings that we have here in the Sermon on the Mount. These are the teachings of Jesus that all disciples are to know and to follow. So it was the task of the disciples, and it's our task as well to to unpack these particular teachings. Now, in order to properly pass on the teaching of Jesus, it needs to be properly understood in its context. Now, by the time the Great Commission is established in Matthew chapter 28, there has been a shift in the the message and the recipients of, of, of Jesus' teaching. So, by the time you get to Matthew 28, the message is now for all nations. But earlier in the book of Matthew, and specifically here in this portion of Matthew, when Jesus does the Sermon on the Mount, 
Jesus is speaking only to Jews and, and really first to Jews as they receive this message. He's actually speaking to Jews who are living under the Mosaic law and who are expected to continue living under the Mosaic law at least for uh, another short amount of time. And so as we, read the, as we read this portion of Scripture, the Sermon on the Mount, there, there, it, it explains why it has an Old Testament flavor to it. Or there are certain aspects of it that, that sort of remind us that they're under the Old Testament law at this moment. For example, you pick this up in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Uh, Jesus says, So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So we, we automatically see that there's, a, there's something different about what Jesus is telling these individuals in the Sermon on the Mount and what would be directly applicable to us as well. So, so how should we understand the Sermon on the Mount? Well, in a sense, it's like reading an Old Testament passage. We have to understand the original audience. We have to understand the original context. And then we seek, once we've understood those things, we seek to draw out the, the proper implications and applications for our life. And so we need to think through that particular grid as we're interpreting the Sermon on the Mount. And there will be other things to say about that particular point. Thirdly, notice that the audience of the Sermon on the Mount seems to be a combination of disciples and crowds made up of believers and unbelievers. Okay, so chapter 5, verse 1 begins by saying, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And so it's not abundantly clear to whom Jesus is speaking. He's speaking and addressing his disciples. But are disciples necessarily believers at, at this particular context, or in this way he uses, uses the, the, the word? And the crowds that are, that are overhearing, are they genuine followers of Christ, or are they just people who are interested in his miracles, who are not genuinely interested in his message? Okay, we, we often see this with Jesus. People are interested in the things he's doing, but they're not actually followers of Jesus Christ. So what I want you to notice, as you read through the Sermon on the Mount, portions of it, or a large portion of it, is addressed to genuine followers of Christ. And other portions are addressed to unbelievers who may be listening in as Jesus preaches. So notice a couple of these. So chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Jesus says, Blessed are you. And he seems to be talking to believers here. When, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. In other words, for, for standing for me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This seems to be genuine followers of Jesus Christ uh, that, that he's speaking to. In chapter 5, verse 16, this is a very familiar phrase, In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So again, he seems to be speaking to, to unbelievers here as he's, as he's sharing this. But at the same time, he seems to be speaking, speaking to people who have to make a decision about whether they're going to follow Christ or not. Right? Chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, he says very clearly, enter by the narrow gate. In other words, you have to make a decision about how you're going to come to Christ. 
For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And he's essentially putting this message before these individuals saying, you've got to determine whether or not you're going to, which, or which gate you're going to, to enter. So it seems that Jesus is speaking to a combination of believers and unbelievers. Now, fourthly, notice that a major theme in the Sermon on the Mount is the coming kingdom. Okay, a major theme in the Sermon on the Mount is the coming kingdom. Now, we have already seen this in the passages leading up to the Sermon on the Mount. So if you were to back up to chapter 3 in verse 2, it says in verse 1, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And here is the message that John articulated about the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay, so that's John's message. Then in chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus has the same message in 417. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then we're told in chapter 4, verse 23, that as he went throughout, or he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and what? Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So, so Matthew has been leading up to the Sermon on the Mount, telling us that the, the message being preached by John, the same message being preached by Jesus, is that repentance is necessary in order to enter the, the coming kingdom, which is at hand because the king himself is at hand. So now if Matthew 5-7 to 7 is an example of the kind of thing Jesus was preaching, we would expect that the kingdom would be a prominent theme in the book of, or in the Sermon on the Mount. And that is exactly what we find. Now, just to clarify, when we talk about the kingdom, here's what we're talking about. We're talking about the kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament, that Messiah would come, sit on the throne of David, establish his kingdom, and rule over Israel in injustice and righteousness. Okay? So that's the kingdom that's, that, that's approaching at, at this time. And in the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom is mentioned eight times. Okay, let's just highlight these quickly. In chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 19, it's mentioned twice. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and, and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Then in verse 20, you have another mention of the kingdom, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Chapter 6 and verse 10 in the Lord's Prayer, they pray, your kingdom come. In chapter 6, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And then the last one, chapter 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. Okay, so the kingdom, eight times in three chapters on the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom plays a primary role and, and, and point in this sermon. 
And there's really two conclusions we draw about the kingdom from this passage. The first is this. The kingdom of heaven is still future. Okay? The, the, of the eight references that are mentioned here, six references are clearly to the kingdom being something that's in the future. Okay? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom. Uh, 633, seek first the kingdom. Okay? Uh, the, the prayer, and the Lord's prayer is pray that the kingdom will come. And then lastly, 721, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. So it's future. It's, it's not yet to come. The Lord has not established his kingdom yet. It's something that, that will still come. And even in verses 3 and 10 of chapter 5, where the kingdom is spoken of as already being in possession, okay, what's, he, what's he say there in chapter 5, verses 3 and 10? Uh, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, verse 10. Um, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In this context, it's, it's in the context of the kingdom still being future. And it's probably best to understand that, that as citizens of the kingdom, it, it's spoken of as already a present reality that, that, that exists because they're citizens of a kingdom that's going to become. It's a certainty in that sense. So the kingdom is, is future. But the second thing we see in this, in this sermon about the kingdom is the kind of person that enters the kingdom. It is the person who is poor in spirit. Chapter 5, verse 3. It's the kind of person who's persecuted for righteousness' sake in chapter 5, verse 10. It is the one whose righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees that enters the kingdom, chapter 5, verse 20. So there is a certain character quality of those who enter the kingdom. They are righteous people that enter the kingdom. So if you want to enter the kingdom, you must be like this, Jesus is saying. So this thought then leads us to our final observation about the Sermon on the Mount. The emphasis of the Sermon on the Mount is on the righteousness expected of those who are citizens of the kingdom. Okay, let me say that again. The emphasis or the thrust of the Sermon on the Mount is on the righteousness expected of those who are citizens of the coming kingdom. And, and I say this because at times, the Sermon on the Mount has been misunderstood or misinterpreted to be teaching a works-based salvation. If you do this, then you will enter the, the kingdom. And it's, it's easy to see how it could be misinterpreted. Let me just read you some of the quotes from the Sermon on the Mount that seemed to indicate this, right? We've already mentioned this one. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, then you can enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 48 of chapter 5, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Chapter 6, verse 14 for if you forgive others their trespasses, is, pras, trespasses, okay, sorry to add a lot of ESs there. Uh, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Okay, it seems to be indicating some sort of works salvation. And then chapter 7, verse 2, right? Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, 
you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Okay, so there are these passages that, that, that seem to indicate a work salvation, but I would suggest that it, it, it misses the, the larger understanding or the larger context of this, of this sermon. Okay, so that the previous section in, in chapter 4, in chapter 3 and 4, has already been crystal clear about what's necessary to enter the kingdom. What is it? It's repentance. That's what John said. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So it's, it, the passages leading up to the Sermon on the Mount have already been clear that repentance is what's necessary to enter the kingdom. But what does that repentance look like? What does that genuine repentance look like? Well, John, in his ministry, has already answered that question for us. If you go back to chapter 3 and verse 8, John the Baptist tells us, as he rebukes the religious leaders who are coming to him and, and witnessing his baptism, he commands them to repent, but, and, and he says, now bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Okay, so you've got these two ideas that John preaches, that repentance is necessary to enter the kingdom, and that genuine repentance is connected to genuine fruit. Okay, so, so if you are genuinely repentant of your sin, the result will be a life of the fruit of repentance. In fact, it's interesting. If you read Luke's account of John's message, uh, the people follow up with John and they say, well, well, what do you mean by repent and what's that supposed to look like? And John starts to, or John starts to give them clear instruction. If you're a tax collector, here's what that means for you. Stop defrauding people. If you're a soldier, here's what that means for you. And he starts to show that genuine repentance has a life change that comes with it. Okay, so this is the message that precedes the Sermon on the Mount. Well, now it's Jesus' turn to demonstrate the fruit of repentance. Jesus has said in 4.17, his message is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now in the Sermon on the Mount, he is showing us the fruit of repentance and what genuine repentance looks like in the things that he says in chapters 5, 6, and 7. <clears throat> now, I found this particular quote helpful to sum up the, the essence and the point of the Sermon on the Mount. Listen carefully. It's a little bit longer, but I think it's really helpful. The natural questions on the heart of every Jew listening to Jesus would have been this. Am I eligible to enter Messiah's kingdom? Am I righteous enough to qualify for entrance? Because the only standard of righteousness the people knew was that laid down by the current religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. Now think about that. That's, that's what they knew in terms of a standard for righteousness was that laid down by the scribes and Pharisees. And Jesus comes teaching something completely different. Would one who followed that standard be acceptable? That is the standard of the Pharisees. Would one who followed that standard be acceptable in Messiah's kingdom? Jesus' sermon, therefore, must be understood in the context of his offer of the kingdom of Israel and, his, and the need for repentance to enter the kingdom. So we, what he's saying there is we need to understand the Sermon on the Mount in light of the command Jesus has already given to repent in order to enter the kingdom. So the sermon did not give a constitution for the kingdom, nor did it present the way of salvation. The sermon showed 
how a person who is in a right relationship with God should conduct his life. Let me say that one more time. The sermon showed how a person who is in a right relationship with God should conduct his life. In the words of my former professor, this is a sermon for repenters. It is a picture of repenters. Now, how does this sermon relate to you and to me this morning? Well, the same truth still exists and still stands. We must repent of our sins in order to be granted entrance into the coming kingdom that our Savior brings. But that repentance, if genuine, will produce the fruits of repentance. And that's what's pictured in the Sermon on the Mount. This is what a repentant person looks like. A repentant person is poor in spirit, which we'll come to next week, but a repentant person is meek. A repentant person hungers and thirsts for righteousness. They are merciful. They are morally pure in heart. They are peacemakers. They are faithful when persecuted. And that's what a genuine repentant person looks like, this and and many other things. Now see, there's a danger of giving lip service to repentance or, or giving lip service to a relationship with God, but not actually having a true repentant heart. And we see this in the end of the Sermon on the Mount, don't we? Jesus said to me, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. There is a danger of giving lip service to repentance, but not being truly repentant. And so this sermon reminds us of what genuine repentance looks like. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for the opportunity to be exposed to your words this morning. And we pray that as we consider them, that our hearts would consider the condition of our, of our own spiritual relationship with you. And, and maybe there's some this morning that need to even examine um, the genuineness of their repentance and whether their life is marked by the, the Sermon on the Mount. And, and so, Lord, we need the, the humility and the wisdom to recognize areas where we fall short and must line up better with the teachings that you have shown us here this morning. But we pray that you would continue to work in our spirits so that these things would be so. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.